You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray Energy, experts in solar energy management. Hello, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. Joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, how are you this fine day? Uh, Very well, thanks, Charles. Hello to all our listeners, and hello to our special guest this week. Yes, indeed. Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets. Tristan, thanks for joining us. G'day, Giles. G'day, David. Yeah, look, um, look, we'll get into, um, there's a fair bit to discuss this week. Um, Energy, once again, on the front page of the newspapers, the front page of the Top of the top of the home pages of the websites and um, all over the uh, electronic media. The big focus, I guess, was the meeting between Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and the energy retailers. David, Malcolm Turnbull said he wanted to eyeball the energy retailers, and I immediately thought of Catherine Kim and uh, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, what do you think he might have achieved? Well. To start with, he did draw attention to a retail practice, that is that uh, you've been on a contract, it comes to an end, and it goes back to a, a, a worse contract or a worse arrangement for the customer without the, unless the customer consciously does something. Just drawing attention to that process and making everyone aware of it, I think would have made the meeting worthwhile, even if perhaps it was uh, you know, putting all the retailers in one room. <laughs> Probably they had a side meeting about how they could jack up prices a bit more. <laughs> and, and that's the risk, isn't it, David? Because um, you can offer a big discount, but if the overall price goes up, and we're certainly not seeing the margins contract, are we? Well, margins are going up. Um, and the discounts, of course, are, are a farce, you know, like uh, it reminds me of the old joke uh, of, uh, uh, you know, my brother came home and told me he bought something uh, that was uh, 50% off. And what did I say? What did you buy with the money you saved or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the discounts have always been larger, in fact, historically in Victoria than they have in uh, New South Wales, but it's also been more profitable in Victoria, and that's despite the higher level of churn. But look, it, it's, it's, it's retailing, despite what you might think, is not actually the real cause of the problems at the moment. The cause of the problems, as we all know, is the higher cost of generation, uh, which is a short-term thing, uh, but it's not going back to where it was a long time ago. And the second cause is the higher network costs, which are never coming down. Uh, and so that, that, there's some fairly intractable difficulties. Mm. Tristan, you wrote a nice piece for us this week uh, about what Malcolm Turnbull could have done. Can you just outline very briefly what he could have done and why you think he didn't do it? Yeah, well, look, I, I think, well, I, I don't, I suspect he hasn't done it because he hasn't thought of it. Um, but uh, <laughs> not that I... Who's advising him? Uh, yeah. Well, it's not really the federal government's... Um, core area of focus, I think, uh, this, this area of um, retail price regulation and, uh, and retail practices, that's traditionally been um, something that the state governments have worried about. Uh, but I think that the key thing that is we've got this really powerful website called Energy Made Easy uh, and also the Victorian government's one, but for it to be powerful, it needs to be combined with a customer's individual uh, energy usage data and once you combine the two you, you've got a really powerful tool um, provided you don't rely on the customer to take the initiative um, <laughs> of, of trying to combine both of them you're never going to get it I know I've gone on to um, 
those websites and uh, particularly the Victorian one, unless you're prepared to sit down for 20 minutes and, um, and answer a survey and, and upload energy data, which is beyond most people, you're not actually going to get a particularly um, useful and informative uh, piece of information about the best retailer. So combine the two pieces of data, force retailers to put that on um, people's bills, use the power of the internet for goodness sake, um, combine those two things and, and tell customers how much they'll save by going to, to other retailers and put it on the bill where they can't miss it. So the right. idea then is to actually just sort of make that data available so we just got less, you know, more visibility about the whole market. You just don't rely on the customer to have to do this themselves. You've got, you've got one database sitting there, one electronic database that's got customer usage data. You've got another database sitting there that's got all the retailers' offers. Combine the two... Um, through this thing called the internet, and then um, then force the retailers to to publish the top three offers on uh, on the customer's bill, and then they'll get their bill, and they'll go, my goodness sake, I, I could save myself five hundred bucks if I went to another retailer, and and you don't have to rely on them to exercise any initiative. It's it's bringing the data to them rather than having them to sort of pull it all together, which is just, I suppose, beyond most people. Hmm. Hmm. David, um, it's, I mean, that's one of the issues with this whole market, isn't it? It's just so, it's, it's very complicated, it's very dense, and very little of it is very visible. Well, actually, it's, it's getting a lot more visible. Um, uh, I, I actually think want to congratulate AGL for a lot of the things they've been doing right recently. They've gone around and put a lot of time of use meters uh, voluntarily in people's houses, they're middly high consumption houses that can afford it. They have made the data accessible on their website. Uh, anyone with a PV system has typically got uh, access to plenty of data. Uh, I guess it's the, the people you feel sorry for. for. Lots and lots of people, electricity is a grudge purchase. You know, they, they just, it's just a bill that they hate having to pay. They want to be able to turn the switch on and not have to think about it too much. Unfortunately for those people, uh, as typically in, the lo in, in lower socioeconomic brackets, electricity uh, is a basic cost of living. Uh, they don't have the time necessarily or the sophistication. There's not much they can do. So all they can uh, is basically pay the higher bills, maybe shop around a little bit, and, and really nothing much is gonna change for those guys. Well, that's a bit sad. Um, David, you did mention AGL's results. Um, they went up quite significantly. Um, they're doing very well on the wholesale markets. I mean, you mentioned about the cost of wholesale um, electricity going up, but AGL didn't experience that much. Their average cost, I think, was $37 a megawatt hour, which is little um, up from the previous year, so they kind of cashed in. Um, well, that's one of the great things about the AGL result. It was actually, they did, from an investor's perspective, was they did a fantastic job on costs this year. But, you know, before we get too upset about AGL and talk about them rorting the market, it's worthwhile pointing out that their return on equity this year was 10.2%. And uh, that's the first time it's hit 10% in living memory. Uh, and in fact, if you look at it, their earnings per share in 2013 was $1.02. Uh, $1 and this year it was $1.20. So over five years, after, after four years of essentially flat earnings, this year it's gone up 20% and it'll go up another 25% next year. When you consider the fact that they Liddell Power Station, they've stuck to their decision to close that, which which is going to hurt or piss some investors off, quite frankly. 
when you consider that they, they have to make a bit of money in front of Liddell because they're unlikely to replace it with anything that's as profitable, I actually don't think they've been at all unreasonable uh, in, uh, or the numbers are that unreasonable at all. Well, it's interesting. You say they've got to make money and, that's, and that's, that, was the, that was the argument of um, Michael Fraser when he bought the coal-fired power generators and it's the argument that Andy Vesey is um, using now because the big problem is they're not really too sure how they're going to make money in this energy transition when we, um, when we sort of this big shift from big centralised generators which are producing so much of their profits now and um, when they go to the um, more distributed scale. Yeah, so it's a, it's a finite set of cash flows that you, you can value like a, uh, a concession period that's going to gradually uh, run out. First of all, it will be Liddell. Later on, it will be Bayswater. And eventually, if nothing else happens, Loyang B. And over the part, depending on how you think carbon policy is going to evolve, it could well be that those guys will have uh, profits will reduce faster than they think. Don't forget, too, that the underlying costs, like everyone else, are going up. Their gas costs have gone up a lot. Even if they build this LNG import terminal in Victoria, uh, they said on the conference call it's going to be 8 to $10 uh, a gigajoule to get the gas in, and that's even with today's oil price. So mm. there'll be more gas availability, but it's not going to make gas-fired generation any cheaper. Uh, there's environmental cleanup liabilities to be funded uh, eventually down the track. It's not all beer and Skittles. No, indeed. Yeah. Tristan, what did you make of the AGL oh, result? And, uh... I mean, it's so funny, Giles. I remember you and I both um, wrote, wrote some stories on uh, a series of presentations that AGL and Origin Energy put out. I think it was either in late 2014 or, or early 2015. And, and they, they actually, those presentations envisaged exactly what has happened. They said, look, all, we've got an excess of power generation right now. Um, which they were using to complain to say this is why the government needs to reduce the renewable energy target. And then separately in this presentation said, oh, by the way, this oversupply of generation is going to completely work itself out of the system when those LNG plants start up because they're going to suck all this gas that's currently in power stations. They're going to suck that out. They're going to boost the price up of that gas. And we're going to make out like bandits um, with our, uh, our new coal-fired power stations that we've bought uh, at cut price, at uh, at uh, bargain basement prices off the New South Wales government, and 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 it played absolutely to script. I mean, there was one fool, I think it was in the AFR, who was saying how Andy Vesey was a genius, and you sat there thinking, mate, it wasn't Andy Vesey, it was Fraser. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, Vesey's sitting there taking all the credit for a decision that Fraser made to um, to buy these coal fired generators off the New South Wales government for a bargain basement price. And, well, and, that's right. Visa didn't even know that they were going to buy the coal-fired uh, generators, he keeps on telling us. But, but <laughs> I mean, this is the crazy thing is this was all envisaged in, in two years ago in an investor presentation that's public. And meanwhile, a whole heap of politicians are running around blaming renewable energy. And you mm. sit there going, this is mental. Um, well, these mm. guys are just so ignorant. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's great for AGL shareholders. I, I should have um, probably bought shares at that um, point in time. Because uh, I was convinced by uh, by Fraser's investor presentation that he was on to a winner, um, but uh, didn't put my money where my mouth is, I suppose. Would have, could have and should have, uh, three famous yeah. words, words for investors. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah, but anyway, and then Hazelwood, of course, shut, which um, was just the um, the cherry on top uh, with all this stuff. and. Yeah. Uh, 
So just just one more thing about the AGL result before we move on to some of the other news, um, Tristan, and this is in your sort of current area of expertise on the um, LGCs, the, Re- the Renewable Energy Certificates. Um, AGL made a bit of a killing out of it this year, um, or this past year, mostly because the LGC price went up because of that aforementioned um, investment drought which you spoke of. What's the outlook for LGCs now? I mean, just point out that LG, AGL just sort of, you know, because they um, the price went up, they had a whole stock of cheap LGCs, so they're able to sort of play the market to some extent and more than doubled their profit from LGCs to about 160 odd million dollars. In the next couple of years, they're going to have to buy some LGCs from the market to um, meet their um, RET obligations. Where are we heading on the LGC price? Well, look, if you, if you look at, we, we collect data on every single retailer and what their holdings are, what are the projects they own and the, the LGCs they can expect from those and also what they've contracted. And you look almost across the board, every single retailer is uh, substantially short LGCs except maybe Hydro Tasmania, uh, Alinta, uh, PowerShop, those guys are long. Um, but... Most others are, are all short, and if they're short, you know, if you looked at it, then the price should be linked to the penalty mm-hmm. uh, for being short, which is, uh, you know, on tax-effective terms, is uh, you know, I think ninety-two dollars eighty-six. So you uh, reckon cents. it's going to stay very high for another year or two to come? Yeah, because there's not enough. Um, I mean, we go and crunch the numbers every day. You know, the moment that we read about a new project being committed or a new PPA being signed, you know, that gets fed into our model. And then we, we look at the supply-demand balance and, uh, you know, we're still short. The, the key thing will be whether the state governments come forward with their purchasing initiatives. Um, and they are going to be pivotal to breaking, I suppose, mm. the shortage. Uh, the, the risk, though, is as an investor, you, you'd actually, if you've built a plant on a merchant basis so you don't have it contracted to a retailer, uh, you don't. You want the market to be short, and um, that's why the, this clean energy target thing is so important. Because, you know, really, it wouldn't take that much. We can see just by if we kept up the project commitments we've been seeing, and we just kept that going uh, for the next uh, few months, then we can oversupply this scheme. Um, so, so I figure if you add in uh, Cooper's Gap, you know, if we look at it, there's been some pretty big projects just recently. Stockyard Hill, of course, was five thirty megawatts. Cooper's Gap, which is not at FID yet, but AGL is speaking as if it was, that's at 433. We saw an, another 200 megawatts of solar this year, this week in, in Queensland. I mean, I, I have it that uh, we've got about five gigawatts have been sort of committed, excluding Horncastle and that bit of Arawat. Uh, uh, that, that, Hornsdale, uh, David, Hornsdale. Hornsdale, excuse me, <laughs> that are um, uh, voluntary surrender. We're getting pretty close to the target already, aren't we? Well, uh, we've still got a we've still got a fair bit to go. Like I've taken into account Cooper's Gap in my uh, my numbers, uh, so uh, we've still got a little while to go before before we push it over. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months because Energy Australia have said they've reached their contracting target, so no more PPAs from them. Origin, uh, after that uh, that announcement on the most recent solar farm, I think they've only got, an, like, I think it's roughly another 150 megawatts to go to meet their contracting target. Uh, and so then what's going to come after that is the issue that's going to then, because we need probably another 1,500 
to 2,000 megawatts to get us over the line. See, I'm at less than that. I'm, I'm at less than 1,000 now. Yeah, no, I'd, well, I'd confidently say we need more than 1,000 megawatts, um, unless you're counting the state government initiatives as locked in. Um, so at the moment, you know, Queensland, we can lock that in, that 400 megawatts they're doing, but New South Wales and Victoria, uh, they're, they're not locked in yet in terms of them moving forward mm-hmm. with their um, contracting initiatives. They've gone very silent. Uh, the South Australian government's a complete uh, basket case. You know, they've, how long have they been running their contracting uh, auction process and how many times have they changed it? You know, we're still waiting to announce, to hear who the winner is. That's right, um, yeah, for the short one and the, and and that, the long that's one. been going for a year and a half, two years. Yeah, uh, I least. mean, what the hell are they doing? Um, changing their mind. <laughs> it's crazy. So um, I don't lock those things in. Um, they need to happen in order for us to get to get over the line. I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm just using the numbers that the um, project developers yeah. use to say how much they're going to produce. We could talk about that for a while. Let's move on. Um, we mentioned those big solar farms up in Queensland. There was the um, the Whitsunday and the Hayman Island. Hayman Island is a 50 megawatt plant that's going merchant, so it's going to be basically trading on the wholesale price plus the SGs, LGCs, and you can see why they would do that. I guess the biggest interest out of that is the emergence of BlackRock, the big US um, fund manager, David, um, which is bought into these two projects. What's the significance of that? Well, just to look at the numbers overall, so I think that now on my numbers there's uh, 1.3 gigawatts of utility PV in Queensland and Counting Cooper's Gap again, 628 megawatts of, of wind, so that's not over 1,900 megawatts. I actually think if you put rooftop solar in, Queensland would be uh, pretty close to equal um, uh, with anyone else in terms of its renewable uh, commitment. The BlackRock coming in shows there's plenty of finance, but we already know that there's plenty of finance around. We can see that from the Powering Australia Renewable Fund, um, and we can see that from the prices that have been achieved. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation's been uh, actually started to get much more active in, in actually supporting this stuff. It doesn't seem to be think it worry too much about crowding out the private sector, and and you know there's plenty of plenty of finance required for everyone. Mm. Um, I'm going to move right along now to the Energy Security Board. This is something that actually just sort of came a bit under the radar this week because so much else was happening. I think while Malcolm was doing the eyeball bit in Canberra, Josh Frydenberg and the COAG ministers announced that Kerry Schott, um, chairman of Transgrid, former um, head of um, Sydney Water, and uh, Claire Savage, um, formerly of the Business Council of Australia, would be on the Energy Security Board. Now, Tristan, this board could actually be a very powerful and influential institution. It's basically going to do the job of COAG because they could never get their act together to coordinate the actions of the AEMC, the Australian Energy Market Operator and the Australian Energy Regulator. So Kerry Schott um, may end up being sort of our energy sarina, if I may. Um, Who are they? Um, And how do you expect this to, to work out? Uh, look, I can't say much for um, for Kerry Shot. I haven't um, uh, really seen a lot of. I mean, she's got a obviously she's got an impeccable. Uh, she's CV. got a great CV, hasn't she? Really, I mean, she stood up to the in the to the New South Wales uh, Labor government uh, to the Obades. 
Uh, I, you know, she's not uh, as young as the youngest person you've ever heard of, but I, I personally think, uh, you know, in terms of reputation, fantastic. And we should also point out that Transgrid have been coming out recently with some very progressive views of the future of energy in this country. I mean, talking about 100% renewables being achievable, talking about these big um, renewable energy hubs happening in New South Wales. So if that's a reflection of her view of the energy market, then that's quite, um, quite a positive. Yeah, you would think that maybe, I mean, a lot of that's to do with the fact that they've the new owners have paid so much money for it that uh, they need to find some opportunity for growth to be able to get a decent return on all of that money they paid the New South Wales government. So, um, But you would think that that might have opened up uh, Kerry Schott's eyes to, to what the possibilities are and that she would have been advised by some... Um, some some pretty heavy hitting um, engineering economics types that would have crunched some numbers on that. So you'd be hopeful that her eyes have been open to that. I think she's also been involved in some of the um, the renewable energy programs that the uh, the Australian government's run over the years as well. So she should have um, quite a good background in that. Um, Claire Savage uh, uh, has, I think, in the background, been quite um, helpful in trying to progress the debate around uh, getting acceptance from some of the large the large end of town for the need for a um, some kind of meaningful emission reduction policy um, her background though she has um, at, at various times in her career actively lobbied against uh, the renewable energy target but she's hardly Robertson Crusoe uh, in that particular um, side of things mm. if you've been in the uh, the big end of the the energy town. It's going to be interesting, David, to see the dynamics of this Energy Security Board, isn't it? Um, so you've got these two new appointments, then you've got the heads of the AER, the AMC and AEMO, um, presumably getting their heads together and working out how we progress to this new energy system, or this transition. Well, Giles, of course, uh, it's a great thing for the for the female side of the equation, uh, which I fully support, but we've got Paula Conboy, you've got uh, uh, Audrey, uh, what's her name? From Zieberman. Zieberman, excuse me, from the AEMO, and, and now you've got Kerry Schott. Uh, and Claire Savage, uh, all mixed in with John Pearce, who's uh, arguably the odd one out in many ways. Um, uh, I guess I would just say I think the whole thing's a bureaucratic nightmare, or could become so, depending on how they actually make it work. It's, it's not clear who the AEMC and the AEMO and the AER, uh, or re- whether they report, whether, whether, who the reporting lines are to, and who has responsibility for what issue. Uh, there's quite a lot of overlap between the AEMO and the Energy Security Board in terms of its functionality. So I, it, this could either be a total flop or it could be very successful. It will come down to the people involved making it work. So let's hope they do. Well, inevitably, I'm sure it will make for many nice lunches. Um, Tristan, Energy Security Board was one of the Finkel Review um, recommendations. The last one, of course, is the clean energy target. Now, you've been a supporter of this. Um, you've written quite eloquently about that. Um, what do you think is going to happen? And is there any way that the coalition government can somehow stuff this up? <laughs> they could definitely stuff it up, even if they did agree to go forward with implementing it. That's uh, my question, actually. Yes, because they may well decide not to go ahead with it. But yeah. if they do go ahead with it, can they still stuff it up and make it unworkable? Oh, absolutely. So the, the number one most important issue is what are the emission reduction targets that are going to be set up for this scheme? And uh, they could set this up such that, let's say, first of all, they set the emissions intensity threshold really high so that coal can earn some credits. 
So that's the first thing you do. Is that really going to benefit Colvo? Uh, well, it, it 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 could potentially if you set the targets the the targets for the scheme in the first few years really weakly, then what happens is you build up this huge bank of uh, of credits under the scheme, and even if you've got a half decent ambitious target to achieve or emission reduction target by 2030, you've pulled up this huge number of credits in the first few years when the target was really weak, and they just flood in and, and undermine what effort you have to do in the later period of the of the years. And so this it, it's like what happened with the solar credits or the, mm. um, the solar bonus uh, multiplier in the and red. By leaving it in the hands of the retailers too, you're ending up with something like what happened with the renewable energy target, their ability to basically sort of control the supply of... Um, Look, look in demand. it's got the same weakness that the renewable energy target has, it, and, it, and it is only a modification of that. It is that a market-based scheme with a fluctuating price, when what project sponsors want, particularly renewable projects, where 40% of the costs are the cost of capital, uh, uh, is, is, is price certainty. And they don't want to be facing unknown future prices in, in working stuff out. They, and this is why the reverse auction schemes have, have got such a lot of strength. The other thing I'd say about it is that irrespective of the clean energy target, if it doesn't satisfy enough demands, we've already seen the states uh, commissioning the AMC to produce work for their own target. Uh, that's Queensland, South Australia and Victoria. Uh, and in fact, Victoria should just get on with what it's doing instead of commissioning yet more work. But in any case, we've already had AGL saying Liddell is going to close. So, you know, we're going to need some new investment. And I, I'm, AGL won't be building a new coal-fired power station while Andy Vesey's there. That was made pretty clear. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the issue, though, David, is, um, is about, I think, one, I agree with you, uh, some kind of uh, government-backed reverse auction would be a good idea. But you can do both. You can have a clean energy target mechanism as your overarching uh, policy framework, and then a subcomponent of that can be: look, government's going to come in, and we're going to provide some of the supply of credits by providing some kind of you know long-term price certainty for a certain proportion of uh, of the scheme. And I mean, the, the power retailers can't complain about that because they've said repeatedly over and over again we will not do long-term PPAs to cover our commercial and industrial customers. And at the same time, the commercial and industrial customers have sort of gone, oh, geez, this is a bit new for us. And some of them have sort of got their act together, like Telstra, but most haven't. And they really aren't comfortable with this long-term contracting model. And, and, and that's where government can come in and say, okay, well, look, you know, retailers, if you're not going to play that role and, and play and take care of some of those customers, then we'll come in and support a certain proportion of the overall market and, and provide some kind of, I suppose, stability role. Um, and, and you'd have the, the overall CT with a subcomponent being supported through you know, long-term government contracts. And I think that would be yeah, a nice yeah, model. I think that's right. And you've struck your point. I mean, the, uh, you know, the retailers, the gen tailors, let's call them the big three, uh, are going to really struggle. There's going to be a lot of new investment one way or another. Uh, their job is to try their job for their shareholders to keep control of as much as possible of it. Uh, if they're not going to offer contracts for the in, into the large part of the market and take on their traditional role of, of taking on essentially the long-term supply risk, uh, then one way or another, that gap is still going to end up being filled by all these industrial customers. 
we're getting a whole lot of uh, generation being built now. Some of it is being done merchant. So the risk for the big retailers is that they're going to lose some control of the market and that's going to continue. One of the other things we didn't mention on the AGL result really, despite the fact that they're doing a few projects with another wind farm through Power in Australia Renewables Fund, is actually they don't really have a strategy uh, for new electricity generation much at the moment. Uh, they've got a gas uh, kind of development strategy. Uh, and they don't really have a mass market strategy to deal with the fundamental problem that they all have, uh, which is declining volumes as, as, as behind the meter stuff uh, keeps getting more and more control. So quite a lot of things going on and you can just uh, gradually, I think, see already the signs of the big three uh, are going to have to work very hard over the next few years to retain their place in the market. Okay. Hey, guys, look, um, we've probably run um, full of time. Um, thanks very much. Just very quickly, um, next week um, or the coming week, I guess we've got the Origin Energy result coming up on Wednesday, so that's going to be very interesting. Um, and, um, and more grist for the mill. And we're getting closer, I think, to a couple of big announcements from AEMO. One is their sort of um, demand forecasts for the coming summer and beyond. And the other one will be their estimates um, at the request of Josh Frydenberg, on the need for balancing or storage or whatever it is. Um, David, anything else on your... On well, your uh, well, I think you're calendar? off somewhere. I think we talked about last week, you're off to Darwin or somewhere to go walking around the rock. Uh, I'm in Canberra Th in Parliament House. Springs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I failed geography in first year high school and <laughs> gave it up. <laughs> that's okay. Well, that, actually, that, that arena conference should be very interesting. So we look forward to those reports from there. Um, that's on the 14th. Tristan, um, what else is coming up? Jeez, uh, mate, you've got me. You I, don't uh... have to answer it. <laughs> uh, oh, that's look, okay. I it'll be uh, keep keep an eye out over the next uh, the next three months. If I reckon these PPA announcements are going to slow down, and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether merchant um, projects pick up the slack. It is very interesting to think about these new projects, whether the, I, I don't know whether Tristan just finally, whether you know whether they can qualify for RECs and CETs. But if you're a merchant project, you, you, you've probably, at the moment, you've probably got a choice as to which scheme you go for. Uh, I think that that's one of the problems for, for merchant projects is you could, you could. They don't know. They, they, they don't know. And um, you can have a baseline attached to you that means that you, you're, you're not able to, after 2030, you're, you're not able to earn CET credits. Um, so mm. basically, you, you choose to reach financial commitment in the next few months, you may find yourself um, cut out of the CET scheme. Um, but if you're right about the prices and the LGCs, they might make their money back so quickly in the first few years, they won't care so much. Yeah, well, Giles, they've got to be able to build the, the project pretty quickly um, that's true, to do actually, that. Yes. And um, I reckon that's why you want to be doing sort of the, the smaller the project the better if you can do sort of small solar projects and roll them out really quickly then um, you can make out while the sun shines and uh, make hay while the sun shines um, and then sort of worry about tomorrow later mm. hey guys we're gonna have to wrap it up thank you very much david cheers Charles. thanks guys See thanks tristan and we'll be back on this podcast same time next week or thereabouts thank you bye-bye Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.